Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Good evening and welcome back to the H2O Podcast. Your, well, mostly weekly um, <laughs> pondering of this, that, and the other thing in the genre world. I am Timothy Harvey. And I am Jason Hunt. Welcome, everyone. We are back. Yes, uh, it is uh, a little bit of a break that we took to kind of organize and plan. And and I don't know if we should reveal this or not. But I, I'm, I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and say this here. Um, we actually have a list of topics. We See, I'm have, not sure we you have, should have told people. Well, that. it's it's not it's not entirely a plan, but you know, uh, we did we did actually <laughs> do a little a little uh, uh, forethought and uh, and who knows who knows how that's going to turn out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this seems like tempting fate. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, Sci-Fi Snob says, Mindy, watch out. Mindy is actually uh, off tonight. She's feeling a little under the weather and and uh, scrambling to get the notes all ready for uh, uh, Salacious Crumbs, which is back tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. We're going to have all of the latest headlines about Star Wars. And so that's... Uh, something that she's working on. Yes, she's there lurking in the chat. The live chat is open. The comments are on. It does look like we're broadcasting to YouTube uh, as well as Facebook and Odyssey. Everything seems to be working at this point. Knock on any available wooden object. Um, it's been It's been kind of a weird thing because over the last couple of weeks, YouTube has at times been uncooperative shall we say because the way this thing works and I don't know if anybody can see let me let me see if I can uh, set this so people can see um, what we're looking at here so uh, over here I've got all of my monitors up here where I can see the the various different um, uh, control panels for the streams well, as you get into this, uh, you have um, a, a piece where uh, the, the, the block that's there, you have the controls on whether or not to start a stream or, or turn the stream off or move it or do whatever. And it's, it's, let me see where here we go. Let me sh let me show you this. All right, so here is our is our stream control panel here. Now you see there on the left, that's the YouTube control panel, and you see up there at the top that little red button that says end stream. And when we go live, prior to that, we start our signal here, and it goes out to YouTube and Facebook and Odyssey, and this little button pops up that says go live. Hey, it looks like you're ready to stream. Click this button, and we'll go live. And YouTube hasn't given us that button all the time. So it's been one of those things where I've been back and forth with tech support saying, hey, where's my button? <laughs> and according to them, 
there isn't any problem. They don't see anything on their end that could be causing it. So we'll just have to take them at their word, won't we? Uh, you know, I think the thing that one should always remember is that uh, it doesn't matter how well you plan this stuff. When you scale to the size of a company as YouTube, the capacity for error and for things to go wrong. Yeah. I, I current, so for work, I, I work on our website and I build all our work website pages and things like that. This is a base, you know, it's a WordPress. It's no, it's not super complicated. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing a whole lot of HTML coding myself. Um, but because we're connected to a couple other organizations that are in our field that are, um, you know, uh, uh, they're organizational groups. They're not other companies. So we occasionally do volunteer work for them and things like that. And because I'm, a, I can do stuff with our website. They're like, could, could you try and fix the thing that's broken up? <laughs> yes, I'll try and fix the thing that's broken on the website. This is WordPress. All three of these sites are WordPress. Yep. And one of them, even though it is, you know, and it, it's a simpler version of WordPress because these guys who operate on a fairly small budget and so they haven't you know there's there's this is not like bells and whistles but every time i go to that website it's like <laughs> and and you know wordpress is this gigantic website building com hosting company yeah. i mean this is like a huge these guys are this is that's their thing and the the fact that every time i go to this website that should not be this hard to to fight with it takes me hours to do stuff that takes me minutes on my own website. Well, and and, and I think part of that well, too is the the whether or not you use templates or if you do it all yourself. I think that factors into it too. But I yes, it does. In fact, in fact, interestingly enough, although it has, does have a template, it is the one website that I currently go in, and it is quicker. And I'm not an HTML coding guy. <laughs> It is quicker for me to do it with, to go in and, and type it as HTML than to yeah. try and get the, the template to behave the way it's supposed to behave. I tell you, Mindy has had, I, I don't know how many websites, because, you know, as we monitor, you know, all of the different uh, uh, conventions as they're, you know, changing schedules and here's our new COVID policy and here's all of this, uh, you sure. know, all of these protocols and stuff. Um I have I have lost count now how many times she's sat there and said it just needs to be you just put a button on the home page here's the covid protocol on your home page here are the dates of your events it's not that hard uh but uh for some people I guess it is a little bit you would it's one of those things where you're like you're constantly going Oh, but you would be surprised. Yes. Speaking of hard, speaking of difficult challenges, let's talk Dune. This thing has been one of those things that has been so difficult to get right for a number of years. And there have been a number of people that have tried not just David Lynch. You go back, you've got Arthur Jacobs, you've got Jodorowsky, you've got uh, 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 Ridley Scott in there at some point. 
Sci-Fi Channel did it. And with mixed results, and David Lynch, of course, did the big screen adaptation way back in the day, 30 years ago. Oh, speaking of which, I need to make a note because Mazerus, uh, Mazerus reminds me that it was 35 years ago today that the real Ghostbusters premiered for the first time. The animated Ghostbusters. That's considered the real Ghostbusters because that's the title of the show. 35 years ago. But Dune, 35 years, uh, 30 years ago, David Lynch, and... So, so this is interesting because I've been thinking about the various uh, challenges. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, there are a, some really fantastic genre novels and, and stuff in other genres. And we talk about genre, of course, for the for your folks, if you're new, we tend to refer, we're, we're referring to science fiction, fantasy, horror, those particular things. Genre, of course, covers a wide range of things, mysteries, westerns, et cetera, et cetera, romance. Um, but when we mention genre, we're generally talking about science fiction, fantasy, and horror. You know, that, there are several... that makes me think, because I don't know, and this, this could be a discussion for, for another time, I don't know that I've ever heard genre generally used outside of science fiction, fantasy, horror. Because if you ever talk about a Western, you talk about a Western. You talk about well, a mystery, and, it's a mystery, or a thriller, or the film noir, or a comedy. And, and some of this is going to come out of, of, of my book background, because it's like you have fiction, yeah, and then you have genre fiction. And genre fiction is all the little subsets. And some of this comes out of just the, the very, very old idea. Uh, very old, I say, 1800s probably for for the uk and then and then the u.s for the tumblr um, crowd that is very old yeah it's very old <laughs> um older than your dad ancient uh, even but the idea that there was there was this sort of hard line between what was serious literature and what was pop literature essentially yeah um the and so stuff. you're uh, yeah in, in many ways and and of course westerns and and horror and science fiction all fell into the pulp category romance certainly romance you know as uh for a lot of people who um um bash romance novels it's a huge huge chunk of the publishing industry and as a used book dealer and when i was when i was doing living in the world used book world you loved you learned to love the romance genre because that was the lifeblood of your indie bookstore if you yeah. were if you were a generalist, right? Like we were. And because it has a huge appeal. My, and my and consequently mother, that means you actually have a steady flow of income in your in your used bookstore, which is something you gotta have in the used book world. My mother would uh, when she went and got her hair done, the salon that she was at was next door to a used bookshop. And me being completely uninterested in anything related to hair and and styling and such i sure. was always over next door in the bookstore uh buying a marathon bar and scouring the titles and looking through all of the paperbacks and stuff there and you're right huge collection of 
the romance, the Harlequins and the and the whatever others and and all of that. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, who buys this stuff? You know, that was that was lots my question. and lots of people lots and of people. and. And, and, you know, you can, we, we, this has come up in some of our discussions, but, you know, you have to end up with this idea of this literature is less than, yeah. right? And some people would get snobby about it. it within the romance field, um, the folks, and this is a, this is a, this is a sweeping statement, like not, this doesn't apply to everybody, of course, but in my experience, they, the folks who read the Regency romances mm-hmm. looked at the folks who read like the Harlequins and and the the you know looked like you know down their oh, nose on them. You read those um, titles, yeah. And little little uh, fun inside fact for those of you who I don't know care. Uh, <laughs> the idea the the number of Regency authors that are men with history degrees writing under pseudonyms <laughs> is really high just so you know uh re- it, regency authors re- re- the whole regency subgenre of yeah. romance is widely regarded to be historical accuracy is like is like their watchword They're that, like, and that fact alone kind of almost makes me glad i didn't go for my history degree then <laughs> so. Well, it's you know the the, the history. I, I frankly, if there was, I could have I could have easily. I, I love history. I could have easily have gone after a history degree myself. But the problem is, is that there's only so many jobs that a history degree can get you. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's just one of those sad things is that there's not a job for for everything that you love to do. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, just a little fun fact uh, if you if you're so interested. We, um, we I had a friend of mine to... who, was a, who was a huge Regency consumer she just gobbled that stuff up we may have to do a little bit more in depth on how all of that splits out and science because science fiction fantasy horror when you look at that stuff there's a lot of crossover they're 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 first cousins of each other sometimes they're they're you know kissing cousins and we, we can we can look at that because there does have a tendency to be a little bit of a blend at times. Oh yeah. And, well, and cross genre stuff is, is, you know, there are authors that's kind of their specialty. And, and we see a lot more of that uh, these days where folks are exploring new ways to tell the story in, in within the confines of, of science fiction and yep. horror fantasy, and then doing it in some new and interesting way, which brings me back around long, long digression. We <laughs> do the digression things here, folks. Yes, we, we take uh, the long way around point, to get our point. To my original point is that there are titles that are considered really, really hard to adapt to yeah. another medium. And Dune is a, you know, one of the big examples of that. And part of that is because Dune is not, a simple story there's a simple story there's there's a number of simple stories that run through it but when you combine them together and then you throw in the fact that herbert is deconstructing certain things right um and you you for folks who aren't familiar with dune or they're only just aware of the first novel and don't don't really realize that it's a beginning of a series or what how where the story goes in the later series and i've seen this pop up in a couple of reviews where people have said this is i haven't read the books this is my only exposure to this etc um 
and one of them was I can't remember where it, where which which site it was that I saw it on. Um, that they were basically like you know, and it's just the standard, you know, uh, chosen one story, and I'm like, uh, no. No. But I can see how you would think that because in some respects, if you were to just read Dune on its own, right, you could come away with the idea that Paul Atreides is in some ways your almost standard heroic figure mm-hmm. because he's, you know, he's, and he, there's, there's messianic kind of, of and then, you know, it's, it's the language of the book. He's considered a messiah figure. Right. But once you get into Dune Messiah, Herbert sits there and goes, okay, so let's talk about what happens when you win. Because mm. I have some news, folks. Yeah. Happily Ever After is a lovely way to end your fairy tale. But you've conquered the universe. What does that mean? You go to Disneyland. Exactly. What happens? What happens if you know Disneyland is, is scared to have you in because you bring along an army? You yeah. know, it's it, and then it becomes this exploration of so many different things, and all of the seeds of that story are planted in Dune. And then you've got explorations of politics, explorations of economics, yeah. explorations of religion, explorations of ecology, um, ecology, explorations of of the idea of what it means to remember to really remember something yeah. and the power of memory and the power the the, the power you can have the, well just to me the power of knowledge and how knowledge is a weapon right. and it's i mean there's and so the idea that you can cram all of this into an hour and a half of setaba <laughs> I don't. What's the what's the running time on on Dune? Do we know? What it this... is the, well. This is Dune Part One, and this is this is the this is the big the big nervousness for a lot of folks is that this is intended to be the first half of the novel, and we're looking at what two and a half hours, I think. Uh, let me look that up because I'm not sure. Because I think it I think it's, it's two and a half hours, and then two hours and thirty five minutes is what IMDb yeah, says. Yeah. So it, and this is only and and. A lot of the reviewers have pointed out that there's going to be, you know, it says it, it tells you right off the bat, Dune, part one. Yeah. And and here's the part that concerns a lot of folks is that the studio has not officially confirmed there's going to be a part two. Well, so, and uh, he was telling uh, I'm looking here. There's a, an interview he did with Total Film magazine where he was talking about um wanting to shoot them back to back together, shoot it all at mm-hmm. once. And the studio wouldn't let him do it. And he had to, he had to just do part one. And he tells total film green lighting. Part two is going to depend on the financial success of the part one at the box office. And that could possibly also be impacted by the HBO Max stuff because it's going day and date, which Denny Villeneuve is not happy about. But that's the that's the times we live in. We're dealt, you know, we play the hand we're dealt, and so he's trying to make the best of it. But you know, if if you're a filmmaker and you sit there and say, okay, well, I'm going to make this grand 
epic sweeping this is this is my Lawrence of Arabia tome, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to make it so I can make the I can tell the whole story. And the studio sits there and says, "Nope, you only get enough money to tell half the story." Okay, well, I'm going to do the, my very best to make this the the best, most faithful and accurate and and epic. It, everything I'm going to throw everything into this thing in the hopes that it does well enough at the box office that I get to do the other half. And then the entire world shuts down and theaters are still struggling to come back. Now we did have Midland success for Shang-Chi and the legend of the 10 rings. It hasn't made enough money yet to be considered in the black, despite what everybody says. It's a success. It's a hit. It's got to probably clear 500 million before it's, Making oh, a profit. I, think, I think in context, I think the the if you look at it within the world that we're living, it's definitely not a failure. Sure, but comparatively speaking, given the fact of how much money has been spent on the production of these projects, sure. But it's also, but you know, I think the the, the it's also an apples to rhinoceroses comparison in the sense that the marble machine has a different level of consideration for what success is than say everybody else because marvel's marvel's got their model that people are going to show up for marvel there's there's always going to be a percentage of an audience that's going to show up for a marvel picture no matter what it is yeah because that's great that's fantastic that they've inspired loyalty with with an audience and that's great and then there's folks who are going to be going to just the ones that they're interested in and there's gonna be folks who are going to get really super excited about this one or that one but Marvel is almost its own beast at the moment. Right. And and there is that. And you've also got, you know, this this idea that Dune is this classic piece of literature that is not people have heard of Dune. People have heard of Frank Herbert's Dune. But like you say, with the people who are reviewing it, I've never read the book. And and you have a lot of people that we're hoping to go see this movie who have no idea what the book is about. They know the David Lynch movie, perhaps, or the sci-fi adaptation. But how many people have actually read the book? Well, and, and the... <laughs> What would be really, really nice in life if we actually had like some sort of way to measure how much exposure some of this stuff really has had? Because dude is a bestseller. It sold millions and millions of copies. But then you have to sit there and go, okay, it's a really dense novel. How many people bought the book and couldn't get into it? Uh, And that's actually been one of the complaints, uh, not complaint, um, one of the the challenges that people have, have recognized for a long time is that there's so much information on the page. Right. There's so much backstory that is baked into. And there's so much of Herbert trusting the audience to follow along as he just unfolds all of this at you. Yeah. There is a lot of world building and, and yes. explaining. And, and that's something that I noticed. I'm, I'm going back through and I'm rereading David Weber's Honor Harrington books. Mm-hmm. 
I got on a kick and I was like, okay, I'm just going to read these again. And I sure. should I should be reading the book, so I got a review, but you know, I, I'm doing this as well. So one of the things that struck me, just it was completely out of the blue just as I'm reading, uh, I, think I, I think it was War of Honor, I think. I'm, I'm four or five books into the series again. And it hits me that within the context, the way that David Weber works in the world building, you're in the middle of a conversation and somebody says something and it sparks somebody else thinking and here's the little explanation of the who's, 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 if it's, and then we're back to a response to whatever gets said in that conversation. So we get to, we get to slide sideways a little bit do a little world building in history of a planet or something like that within the context of what's been said in a conversation and then we're back to the conversation. Herbert doesn't quite do it that way. You have these long tracks of here's all of this stuff that you need to know. And and it works. It's not just this massive exposition info dump and then we tell story. It's within right. the context of the story. But you're right. There is a lot to it. And I remember uh, one of the things that struck me about how this story is written. It's on a desert planet. But Herbert uses a lot of ocean and water themed language when he's talking about the desert. And that intrigues me so much. And I think that's one of the things that really locked me into being able to read it because it it's a it's a completely different approach to that environment. Well, and it also feeds into the story and the the, the importance of water and how valuable it actually is. Here's a the there's this incredibly you know, important and valuable resource on this planet that everybody wants. Mm. But the people who live on the planet, their biggest concern is not the spice. It's making sure they have water to live. Yeah. And, and the, the, the shaping of all of that in this sort of, especially when you compare it to Caladan, the planet that, that uh, Paul and his family come from to when, before they come to Dune, you know, it's such a lush, verdant world. It's so very much, you know, green and oceans and all these things. There's so much evocative language in the book that helps move the story and, and shape the story you're, you're experiencing. And translating stuff that's the power of language on the page into visuals Um that's that's a challenge no matter what you're doing yeah because you know that's just that's just hard and i i am so at various points the various directors you mentioned that are involved have been involved with this version or that version first of all i am a i enjoy very much david lynch's dune as a movie mm -hmm. as an adaptation of dune it leaves a lot to want better versions of um and of course 
the sad fact of the matter is that that a huge chunk of that wasn't his fault. He had a vision for the film. The studio also sat there and went, we'd, we'd do this other thing. Uh, and it was a real, you know, he, it's like his great public shame. He, he doesn't even want to talk about the film anymore. Uh, and I mean, he'll, you know, he, it's not something that he wants to revisit part of his life. He seems to want to revisit because it was not a pleasant one for him. Yeah. But he does some really interesting things that you kind of in all and there's some alternate universe, just like one branch off where there's the complete he let his own vision have you know his own vision is completely in control and that's the film they got. Yep. But whether or not it would have been a really good adaptation of Dune is a very good question. But, uh because but, but one of the th- one of the things that he did was, you know, he it's a very odd movie. Oh yes. And it's a very odd-looking movie, which is very much David Lynch. Great, that's what you want. You know, that's what you expect from David Lynch, and it's a way of tackling challenging material by leaning into the fact that it's alien. Yeah, you know, it's ten thousand years in the future. It's it. Not all of this stuff is going to be recognizable, guys. Right. <laughs> uh, it, Thomas mentions in the in the Facebook, uh, Patrick Stewart was younger in Dune than he is now. He says, "Look out, Sandcat." But see, and and that's the thing. I saw what was it the other day? Um, Will Wheaton is the same age, or he's about the age that Patrick Stewart was when he started on Next Generation. I mean, you you start to hear this stuff, and the bones just start to creak a little bit more. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, I know. I know. I, I, I actually know. started having to take something for my arthritis now, so I'm I'm officially there. Uh, sci-fi Snob says some of the costuming is very good oh, and, and it's yeah it's one of those I think visually it's a treat there's there's so much interesting visual things going on all the time in that movie um, but in terms of adapting it streamlines the story so far down yeah. uh, and, and it very much turns it into a chosen one story it's you know and and it's we're going to, uh, spoiler alert for a decades old movie, <laughs> but it rains at the end. And any, any, if you've read the book, you're going, no, what are you doing? You can't <laughs> fine, whatever. Um, it's just, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a tonally, it's so wrong for the book. And yet, the I mean, as an ending to a movie that had, if, it, if there was no connection to the novel, it'd be a fine ending for the film. Right. But it's so jarring if you've ever read the book. I, I'm, I think that for all the fail, the failure of that movie in terms of Lynch's personal feeling of failure, its failure at the box office, its failure to capture. A re- be a really good adaptation of, of Dune I'm glad we got that and we didn't get Jodorowsky's Dune because that movie as much as I love the documentary about it mm-hmm. not happening okay everything I hear about that film I think <laughs> no yeah, it's, it, it would be it would be a film that you would watch once and go, 
well, that was insane. And you would never think about it again. <laughs> or, or you might or you might think about it a lot, but you wouldn't. It, it might poison the well in the sense for making an adaptation of Dune, because that would be the thing that lived in everybody's mind for good and for ill. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing, a... too, you've got, you know, the failure of of Lynch's adaptation, you know, when you stop and consider just how Hollywood thinks where, you know, Supergirl didn't do well at the box office. Halle Berry Catwoman didn't do well at the box office for the ne- so for the next 30 years. Uh, we can't have a female lead superhero movie because nobody watches them. Well, right. OK. Well, I I have to wonder how much of this Dune is impossible to adapt thing comes from so many different times people have tried to crack it and weren't able to, and then Lynch finally does it, and it fails, and Hollywood looks at it and says, well, this is not going to be a thing. We're not going to try this again for 30 years. I think there's there's definitely part of that. I think that it made it some Lord of the Rings both made it easier for a studio to consider doing something like this. Mm. And then the Hobbit made it harder again. <laughs> yeah. And that's and that's not to bash anybody involved with the making of the Hobbit. It's yeah. just the reality of how things worked when, you know, you set off to do this epic trilogy with Lord of the Rings and for huge numbers of people it's it's a massive success i i have the extended editions i love them there's so much cool stuff on those i love those uh just you know the depth that they go into there and trying to recapture that in a three-part series of a movie that's really only one film long you know yeah so so i think that there's there's this like boomerang or yo-yo effect that that you can get with hollywood or it's like aha look oh wait no no aha look oh wait no no um and and because as much as we want to think that it's about the art it's a business that's (laughs) what happens i mean that's just i wish it was different uh i wish it was about the art but i the what the something good that we can we can look at here for for Villeneuve's Dune is that it is not a cheap movie, but it is also not comparative to compared to some other giant blockbuster spectacle movies. It's not really in that super high end. It's what? $160 million. It's not a cheap project. Um, by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, you got stuff that's 200 million, 250 million. That's just blowing, you know, that the idea that we would have something like that. 165 million. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, we're, this is not, you know, pocket change, obviously, but in, in terms of some of these big spectacle movies, um, it's not the biggest budget, you know, right. That you have to, uh, worry about. So, I mean, the, Sci-fi the possibility. Not... No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going the possibility is greater. I yeah. Mean, you know, the lower it, the lower the the production costs. Well, at 165 million, if you double that, that's what 320, 330. Let's say 350. So you at least have to make that much back 
in in box office and streaming, I guess you're going to have to look at both of them. You got right. so worldwide, you've got to do three fifty at least to break even because right. of all of the distribution and and of course the marketing and the promotions and now being delayed three times, you've got additional costs as far as that goes. So I would say they've got to clear north of five hundred before. And again, it's just like Shang-Chi, where you have to go past a certain point to be even considered profitable, much less successful. Because you remember what the reaction was with Batman v Superman did this much, but not as much as the studio was expecting. And it's considered a flop, even though it cleared a billion dollars. So, you well, know, it's, yeah, Hollywood yeah. economics is... Oh, I know, I know. Sci-Fi Snob says, Hollywood makes a crappy girl superhero movie then blames it on the girl part, not the crappy part when it fails. Of course, <laughs> so, of course. Well, now, and, and you look at some of these... Uh, um, I just watched... Uh, what is it? Uh, oh, I just watched Kate on netflix oh yeah okay mary elizabeth winstead yeah yep and i found it to be a perfectly entertaining um so i guess i want to stay spoiler free for the folks who, who haven't who haven't seen it might want to um perfectly uh, a assassin with a heart of gold on a on a mission movie right and i i was i was cheerfully entertained but haven't we seen and, this movie already? Didn't didn't well, yes, we of course, have of course it we have. in something of, called Lucy? Well, we've seen it. Well, no. So this is this is this film didn't enrage I mean, not me an, the not way that an assassin, Lucy enraged but, me. I know, but the but, but the, the general concept. Oh yeah, but the thing is, is that is that there's nothing wrong with this general concept. And I was watching it, and 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 then I read a review for it, and they were like, "We've seen this all before," and I'm like, "You know what?" There were, that was the entire model of the of the late eighties, early nineties for every action star. Yeah, every action star made like five movies look just like this, and they and you the there was not this idea that we were like you know oh we've seen this before. It's like oh no, it's another Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and I'm like you know what. She got to make an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. She got to make a Bruce Willis movie. She clearly is having a good time. Yeah. I am entertained by this film. Is it high art? No. Was I was I sitting there going, ooh, that's a great shot, or ow, that's got to hurt, or ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> yes. And you know what? I was cheerfully entertained. Is it is it a great movie? Eh, no. But is it a, was it was it fun? Yeah. yeah. I, I did. Was, I was entertained. I did a review here. Uh, we posted it last week. It was. A, it's a movie called Final Frequency, with Charles Shaughnessy in it. Uh, you'll you'll know him from The Nanny, among other things. But it's mm -hmm. it's a it's a low budget. Um, uh, the, there's stock footage from Storyblocks, same as what we use. And some sure. visual effects compositing that could probably use a few more hours in the oven. But it's it's this it's this idea of uh, people going after Tesla's secret notebook to finish the research to create this device okay. that uses sure. the harp 
the high the high amplitude uh, frequency thing array up at uh, up in Alaska mm-hmm. in order to artificially create earthquakes and the idea is to hit this ver- like this vertical fault line underneath downtown Los Angeles during the G20 summit in order to kill all the, the world leaders and start over again with better people and I'm sure like, okay that's an interesting premise the execution however leaves a little something to be desired. And that takes me to Thomas's uh, uh, comment here. He says, I researched Lynch's Dune twice in the last three months. It's laughable and trippy at points. But then you look at a, at a comment that Sci-Fi Snob says, in some aspects you can get the size of things, or the grandeur right. in some of the things that Lynch did. And it really feels like that Villeneuve is going for that kind of scope and yeah. scale too that sense of everything being big and and gigantic i read a review today where they described it as 2001 and lawrence of arabia mm. in the same movie i can see that and you've got that but in both cases you have a sense of scale to show the the how small humanity is against interstellar distances against how how vulnerable these people are against mm-hmm. this harsh terrain, against the armies that are coming for them, for against you know all these things, and I think that that's something that they sold really well in the trailers. Yeah, this sense of of um, epic how small some of these these people are appearing against this scale, uh, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that because end up viewing there's some visual shorthand you can pull off that i think villeneuve has done really well in other films and which which gives you you know again just based on the previews and and a lot of the a lot of word we've gotten from early screenings is that in many ways i can't think of another director right now who you would want to be trying to handle this material. And this, of course, makes me nervous, too. Um, that <laughs> when you look at something like uh, Arrival or, or Blade Runner 2049, you consider how he handles storytelling mm-hmm. and how much of it is visual and how much of it is letting you get information from the landscape and the environment that the characters are moving through. Right. Um, even if it's something that's as simple as the ordinary world and arrival, except for the alien ship, which is so alien or just that, that the future that, you know, we got with the original Blade Runner and then taken to the next level in, in, in 2049, he's really good at conveying information through image which in something yeah. like Dune, because you don't have Lynch tried. He had so much voiceover stuff happening because he was trying to find a way to convey in so much information that is on the page that he doesn't want to sit there and go, as you know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, and so you got voiceover and, and internal monologue and voiceovers. Watch film noir movies, folks. Well, watch film and movies, any movie, because a lot of them are, are great. But voiceover is hard. Yeah. 
a character, a character, you know, telling you the story in a voiceover uh, is it's a real challenge. It's problem, so easy to get wrong. The problem with voiceovers is there's a tendency if it's done wrong, what ends up happening is you get too much of it. And it's all over. Or on the flip side of it, they do not enough. It there's mm. a, I've, I've seen a couple where there's a little bit and then it goes away for the most of the... I think Sucker Punch is, is kind of like this. There's, there's the beginning narration... And then you get the whole movie and there's no, there's no, you establish we're going to get a voiceover and then we don't until the end of the movie. And then it's revealed that the narrator of the, of the story who's been telling you of all of this is somebody who wasn't there for most of it and doesn't, shouldn't have any of this knowledge about what just happened. So it's, it's like, hold on just a minute here. You know, I, I really, I really got irritated with, with Zack Snyder on that point right there, because I'm like, that's not the person who should be narrating this story. Well, yes, there's, there's some story structures with that. The, well, yes, uh, sci-fi sob points in there. Uh, Princess Erlen at the beginning was the only useful narration. And in many ways, that's kind of like, that whole opening bit, there's a certain amount of dark fairy tale aspect mm -hmm. to Lynch's version. And so in many ways, that's almost the once upon a time yeah, in a land far, far away story set up. That's kind of what that uh, uh, introduction actually serves pretty well as. And I have to admit, and, I have not seen Lynch's Dune in gobs of years. I, it's now that I, I, I think about it, I don't know that I've watched it since it came out, since I first watched it. It's an interesting it, it parts of it don't age well physically in terms of effects that look very mm -hmm. very, very dated. Yeah. Um Christopher says, I wonder how much of the voiceover info dumps were Lynch's or Dino's micromanagement. Dino De Laurentiis, the producer. Uh, you know, considering how little Lynch likes to talk about it. It's probably sounds, studio interference. Yeah, uh, in a lot of a lot of what he said seems to imply that didn't he shoot a whole lot more than what we got in the film, and oh, yeah, and the narrations right. are basically f filling in the gaps of what got cut. Right. Well, so there was always the long rumor that there was a four or five or six hour cut, and <laughs> he was like, "Okay, it was never that long. Uh, it was long." Um, there's the, there's the quote unquote, um, uh, it's not the director's cut, but there's the work print cut yeah. that people have sort of cobbled together from all the various sources, which fleshes it out, uh, uh, the story quite a bit. Um, but he does like, no, that's not what I had in mind either. Uh, and no, I haven't watched it so I can tell you, but I, I know it wasn't what I had in mind. So <laughs> there's, there's so much that we're just never going to. I mean, we're just never going to see that version. We're never yeah. going to see what he had in mind. And I don't know that it would have been a success because Lynch is such a, he's got such a visual style that just doesn't appeal to everyone. I do. I, I also want to slip over to that alternate reality where he did return of the Jedi. 
Because that was what that was what he turned down to do Dune, right? It was Return of the Jedi or was it Empire? Um that's a good question. I, I don't It, it I don't was know. one of the it was one of the two. And and this just imagine what Star Wars would have been with David Lynch going wahaha. And his <laughs> you know, I mean, that could have been just you know, it's an, it's just, it's the alternate universe where Eric Stoltz is in Back to the Future. Um so And maybe, maybe it's the horror fan in me that as much as I am scared of what uh, Dune may or may not be, finally, may or may not be. Yeah. Um, it was Jedi. Ah, there you go. Um, that there's this... I've been let down by so many horror films in the past, so many horror sequels. You know, watching so many horror franchises kind of do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, the idea that you know that we're getting a Hellraiser reboot—it's like finally. Could, could could we just scrap everything that's happened for the last couple of decades and start <laughs> over, please? Um, you know, because you see something like that that got so much potential go off the rails. And I really quite enjoyed the sci-fi channel versions of Dune and Children of Dune. I thought they did a pretty good job with that. Yeah, I did. They too. put a lot of information in that had been left out of, of Lynch's. They, you know, it, it, it had its own problems. Some of it came out. A lot of that came out to budget. Yeah, but they did. They did some really impressive stuff with not a lot of money. Can you imagine in any of those productions? whether it's Lynch's or sci-fi's, taking what they had and, and using technology like the volume, for example, mm. to create all of these environments. And I have to wonder how much of that is in the new one. Because really I haven't that. heard if they actually went into one of those uh, in, into one of those studios or not. I, I'm I'm thinking they shot a lot of this on location. So yeah, so uh, I've quite a bit of what I've read from the cast is that Villeneuve likes tangible things. He likes yeah. to be able to interact with. So at least part of those lo of those sets are are scale big physical things that you can interact with and i have and to wonder i have to wonder if that comes up in conversation when they're discussing the possibility of part two because if the box office isn't there like the studio wants it to be but but there's demand from the audience is, hey we still want to see part two Maybe they maybe they cut their costs a little bit by by shooting it in the volume there like Mandalorian does. Potentially. I mean, that I, I, I would be um, open to that idea. I think that one of the things that has come up is that, of course, he's talking actually about a third film. They've been doing Dune Messiah mm -hmm. as the end of this story. And so the Sci-Fi Channel took, so they, they did Dune, and then the second miniseries was called Children of Dune, but it was actually Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, two yeah, novels combined, combined into one. Right. Dune Messiah is the shortest novel in the, in the series. And if you 
everything that you all the highs of dune get flipped in dune messiah dune messiah is not a cheerful novel right um it is it's where herbert really leans into the idea that be careful what you wish for beware the charismatic leader beware the the you know the person who comes along and says i can save the universe because there's dangers with these and, and historically we've seen this happen in, in our own experience yeah but it's also the idea that looking at the consequences of these kind of things on not only individuals but on society and culture and and the universe writ large which leads you into children of dune and leads you into god emperor and I was like, okay, these are pretty good. Are they going to try and do God Emperor? How are they going to try and do God Emperor? Because we talk about the concerns of adapting Dune. Yeah. Because so much of it is, is it's so dense. There's a lot of internal monologue. There's so much politics and, and religion and economics and ecology baked into the story. How much of God Emperor takes place inside Leto II's head about half the book is him basically talking yeah. to the reader and some of it is backstory and some of it's, it's describing situations but well, a lot of it is philosophy how, and it's like how much of that could you extrapolate like we did for our adaptation of the statement of Randolph Carter, because Randolph Carter, that, that story from HP Lovecraft, that's told first person is, is the narrator. And he's, he's clearly talking to someone, but we don't get mm -hmm. that part of the conversation in the book, in the story. And what we had figured out was, okay, he's being interrogated. He's talking to the police. And that was that was our structure for that narrative. But what if you did something like that, where you contrive for a lot of that to be not just philosophical meanderings, but conversations? And I th I think it's it's do it do it in that way somewhat. Now, of course, you're taking liberties, but in, you almost have to with some of this stuff. Oh, well, you, we, we talked about this before. When you move from one medium to another, you have to change things. They're just, they just don't, you know, a comic book cannot become a feature film if you're just having stills on a page. It's yeah. not how it works. So you have to figure out how those characters move and what those costumes look like when you put them on a human being who's a three-dimensional person. And you know what? The wings on Captain America's cowl look really dumb when you put them into real life. And, and you know what? Ooh, it can't. That can't be spandex there. You need to make sure that you've got, you know, <laughs> something that the, the person can actually breathe in because spandex, turns out, folks, spandex is not actually comfortable. Looks great in a comic book, but running and jumping and <laughs> flipping and all these things, you know, you, you take these things into account when you make are, adaptations. Are you speaking from experience, Mr. Harvey? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> if you want to go back to my high school theater days, yeah, of yeah. course I am. I mean, you know, so um, you can... I there's always there's always something that changes and there's yeah. ways to do that with with god emperor but i if if you were to come to me and say all right tim you've cracked god emperor as a script i have not 
cracked God Emperor as a script. But we want to give you $200 million to go off and make God Emperor as a feature film. I would say no, <laughs> because it because there's there's too much. Yeah, the all the problems that you have with Dune are those those concerns, those those adaptational issues, double for God Emperor. Yeah, because not it's a different kind of story, right? But you have some of the same you have some of the same problems. It's very dense. Um, this particular one is very narration driven it's so much of it is told from Lido the second's point of view right. um but it's also the way it's structured you almost would want to do it episodically anyway because there are parts and i was thinking about this earlier today there are parts of it that are almost cliffhangers what if okay so we've got the we've got the prequel the benny jesuit prequel what if and, and I'm I'm not, you know, I'm just spitballing. But what if some of these books end up on HBO Max as miniseries, limited series? Where I mean, you could it messes things up because you don't do them all entirely as films. But what if you did something like, you know, you take. Dune Messiah in the theater, and you do God Emperor in a in a limited series I, I, on HBO Max, and and let it I play out for ten hours. Some, I would rather see something like that, yeah. uh, honestly, just because it gives you a chance. Um, not to mention there are there are moments that are big reveals in in God Emperor, where the impact of making the audience wait for a week. Yeah would be yeah. so much more powerful than just going you're sitting in the theater the big reveal happens and you're like what and then it's the next scene yeah i mean we that of course obviously that happens in movies all the time but there's a there's a particular moment there's two particular moments i'm thinking of uh right now involving a recurring character um no spoilers on this one because it dune god emperor Recap every one of the sequels to Dune casts your previous perception of the story you are reading mm -hmm. in a different light. Yeah, because Herbert was always saying, um, "Okay, beware messiahs, beware." You know, the uh, I saw this pop up in a in a review recently where someone again talking about the the white savior story that you got that was really part of 1800s literature in early 20th century that Herbert was, was reacting against with some of this too. So you get this sort of stuff going on. It's like, yeah, you clearly haven't read the book because that's kind of one of the things he's going, <laughs> that's not how things work. Yeah. Um, and so, but you know, Dune Messiah changes things. Children of Dune changes things. God Emperor changes things significantly. The later books, Heretics, Chapter House. What am I? I'm forgetting one of them. Anyway, uh, Harkonnen. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm just thinking the the just the ones that that Herbert wrote, not oh, the okay. not the okay. the yep. sequels. But there's um, the later ones don't do that as much. They do it. They do it a little bit, but in a different way. But you, I think that if you were to sit there and tell the stories. If you could do children or uh, you know, Dune, Mes Dune Messiah, children, and then God Emperor, you could stop there. Yeah. 
and have thus you know a complete saga because where where the ending of children of dune it leaves opportunity for a story which herbert continued but it also gives you a end point for an audience that you could sit there and go you know the folks who aren't necessarily the big science fiction fans are just the folks who go see it in the movie theater yeah. or so watch it on HBO Max. That would be an end point to the story. But I, I am, I am pleased that the vast majority of the reviews that I have seen are, this is a beautiful film. It's very well crafted. The performances are great. It's engaging. Yep. It's disturbing. It's exciting. I did read, I think it was IndieWire, I read today, where they were like, um, this movie's boring. And I'm like, okay, well, you had a different reaction, and that's fine. You know. Um, well, Meta- Metacritic's got it sitting at 75, yeah. uh, and this is based on early reviews, early critic reviews. This is not audience scores factored into this at all. Rotten Tomatoes... Right, we don't really have, we don't we have, don't have audience audiences. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 87 Yep. So, you know, there is uh, there is a good sign there, I guess you could say. But it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, well, you know, how, how many... What kind of legs is this thing going to have? Because if you remember, the, you know, the story of Star Wars, you know, George Lucas even said, you know, tells the story of, you know, him being out in Hawaii on vacation, opening weekend, and he gets a call from Alan Ladd Jr. It's a hit. It, we've got we've got a hit on our hands, and Lucas is like, "Well, science fiction films always do well on the first weekend. Let's see what it does the second week." I mean, he was always the pessimist. He always assumed it was just going to be this this terrible thing, right? So, you have box office dropping almost, I think, almost eighty percent for Black Widow. Shang Chi drops almost seventy percent week to week, sixty seven percent, I think, and. So now with Dune, if it drops like that first week to second week and maybe it makes up for the difference a little bit on HBO Max, but since we're at our end point here, what are you thinking the first weekend is going to do, do you think? I have no clue. I mean, I just... I The, the problem is, is that when it comes to stuff like this, you see these great trailers and everyone talks about how great the film is yeah. and, and the, the reviews are. And we saw this, for example, even within Villeneuve's own, own history, you look at Blade Runner 2049. Early reviews, this film is great. It's a fantastic sequel to the original. Um, it's gorgeous. It's, you know, the, all these things. I really, really, really think it's a it's not superior to the original, but you know what I mean when I say it's a superior sequel. Yeah, you know, we have so many sequels that are inferior. Yeah, this is this is on the you know. Well, and I think it also shows that Villeneuve is sensitive to the source material because you know he's respectful of that. He's like this this is very much along the lines in the same vein, and he does take time with the craft of making sure Mm -hmm. that, you know, Blade Runner 2049 feels like Blade Runner. You know, the aesthetic is there, the lighting, the cinematography. He he goes through all of that painstakingly. And it's that 
probably more than anything else that has me thinking, well, maybe, maybe his adaptation of Dune is going to get somewhat close. I, I think that that I've been very reassured by the fact he's because he's talked about some of the things that he has changed that he's acknowledged that he's changed. Yeah. But so much of them have been driven by finding a way to tell part of the story. He couldn't tell if he didn't make, you know, he's talked about how he's a lot of he's, he's sort of ramped up some of the, the female characters from in the first in this film because they end up telling more of the story. And you know what? Considering how important the Bene Gesserit sisterhood is to the story, mm-hmm. you know, ramping up the Lady Jessica and the Bene Gesserit, okay, yes, that makes a lot of sense because they, there's so much of what's going on with them that we get in backstory in the book that how do you, you know, so, okay, so he's doing that. Right. He's looking at, looking at Liet Kynes and how important Liet Kynes ultimately ends up being for info dumping in the book that can't be just an info dump in the film. And so I, I'm like, okay, I, I, I get your logic. Let's see how it works out when it gets to the final film. But I understand when he's talking about these things, I'm like, okay, I can see what you're doing mm-hmm. and what you're saying makes sense. So yeah. hopefully it works. The big, I think one of the things that, we saw though unfortunately with blade runner 2049 is that for all that it's it's people still i mean they're they're people who who discover the film years later now and go this was really good it's like well that's great why didn't you watch it in the theater yeah right why didn't you buy tickets when it and and you know what i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna uh uh movie goer shame anyone where it's like okay you know what we don't always watch the films that we we come to love what are, in, in early days when they're right out it yeah. doesn't happen all the time you know what are the possibilities what what is the possibility you think <clears throat> that this thing has been hyped so much and there's so much writing on it and there's so much expectation so much anticipation what what's what are the chances that people get intimidated by it and they don't go see it because this thing is going to be so big and so dense and so epic i'm not yeah I, i'm just not even going to mess with it um i think that that is a real concern i think it's the fact that we had david lynch's dune which did not do well right uh it, it, it and and it's become a cult classic i mean it, it really has i mean and I think that we're this. There is a very real risk that this version of Dune could become something like the original Blade Runner or The Thing. Some of these films were when they were initially came out. Yeah. For all the fact that they're you know, um, well, the, the thing's an example. The critics hated it, and the audiences loved it when they finally saw it. Um, but these films that actually hold up over time. And I could be wrong, but based on the visuals I've seen and the reviews I've read, I'm suspecting that 20 years from now, people are going to look at Dune and go, it's one of the modern classics of science fiction movie making. Right. That doesn't mean it's going to translate into box office. Yeah, that's the big thing. Because there are there are going to be people, I will admit, uh, especially over the last six months or so, 
where, you know, things start to open back up and people are going to the theaters and people going out to, to dinner and, and doing their thing and, and actually getting out in the world. And I'm, I'm at the point where old man get off my lawn has essentially taken over everything. And I'm, I'm, in a mindset right now where I just don't want to get out and go anywhere. Not, not necessarily because I'm afraid to get out. I'm not, but it's, I just want to be left alone. You know, it's that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, you know, all of this mess and chaos and mayhem and everything out, you know, all the, all the stupid that we're having to deal with out here. I just, I'm just like, I just don't even want to hassle with it. I just, just, just leave me alone. And well, and now, now it's, it's not like when you, you know, haversham your way into the crumbling old mansion and no one ever heard from you. Now you just order in. Yeah. You know, you can get 90% of what you need out of life uh, uh, from Amazon and you can get 10% the rest of it from DoorDash. So, I mean, what else do you need? Right. Um, but Sci-Fi Snob is predicting it will not do well enough for part two. It'll be great, but not enough people will see it to merit part two. Uh, he says lots of good shows have been prematurely canceled by the suits due to short-term vision. Yeah, That's, that's uh, a fear. Yeah. And it's a legitimate fear. And I think that it I mean, would be, again, haven't seen the movie. Can't, you know, trust me, I will have an opinion when I see the film. I will either, you know, I mean... I had an I had a very clean opinion when I walked out of of uh, Lynch's Dune, going. Mm. That was a thing I saw. <laughs> well, how do I feel about this thing that I saw? And yeah. it, it took me, you know, because it's such a different thing. But yeah, it um, takes a while to I process. Christopher asked, "Do you that, think do you think uh, Villeneuve would have been better served by pulling a page from Jackson and doing both films at once? He wanted to. Oh, yes. Yeah, we talked about that yes. earlier. They they should they should have done it both." And there's precedent and, and, for that, you know, back to the future two and three. Sure. And I think that, I think that to some degree we are, we're seeing an example of a studio. They're erring on the side of caution. Just like we've talked about with, with how studios react to these things. Yeah. They see, well, and, and at least one of the folks making this decision watched the documentary about Jodorowsky's Doom and went, Oh my God, this could have been a disaster for the mm. studio. Yeah. <laughs> they would have, they would have set us on fire. And because <laughs> I mean, it, it, his version would have been insane, yeah. but, uh, and, and again, for all the folks who wanted to see it, I, I wish you nothing. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bash you wanting to see it. Um, it but would have been different having, if you watch the documentary, you realize how much he would have diverged from the source material. Uh, and and while it would have been very interesting to look at, it wouldn't have been uh, Dune. It wouldn't have been Frank Herbert's Dune, and it would also have been apparently from from at least everything that he said, the narrative would have been. There's a word involving bats, and um, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I mean, I think that I think that what we've got here certainly is an opportunity yeah. with, with what Villeneuve's doing. It's, but I think that it's one of the few films I think would actually get me out into the theater. Oh, 
Um, this one, this one, and Ghostbusters, I think, are the two that I that I think I would probably take the time and bother to go out and see in the theaters, even though so, it's getting out of the house. Well, and there's there's this very clear thing that I'm seeing through with the majority of these reviews is that, look, the option is there to watch it at home. But unless you've got an IMAX theater at home, yeah. you're going to be missing out. And and this is one of those. There aren't that many films I sit there and go, yes, I have to watch something in IMAX. But quite frankly, this is one of those movies where it's like, this is how it's meant. And the folks who have seen it in IMAX are going, you know what? There's a reason they're telling you to do that. Yeah. Because it really does contribute to this, the, this, the, the visual aspect of the story that contributes to the narrative storytelling yeah. structure I'm, that he's built I'm not here. sure that so. I could handle watching it on IMAX. I think it might t- touch off a little bit of my vertigo. But the, uh, sure. the, the, the seeing it up on a screen, especially when Villeneuve sits there and says, it has to be, you have to see it on screen. Well, of course, you're the director. You're going to say that. But the every everything that i've seen as far as the visuals and you know the things that he's said in interviews about the way that they have approached this makes me think that that it would it would not play as well on a tv screen at home so think, i'll probably think, have to get out and and actually watch it yeah i think if nothing else what we have here is a legitimate attempt that and a director who was left alone more or less from the studio to tell the story the way that he felt it should be told right which is not always a thing that happens with this sort of you know project david lynch's dune is an example of that right but i think as much as it's going to probably be really crappy to not get part two, if we don't get part two, Mm. the fact that we at least got, we at least have a director who's taking this hard thing and trying to make it into a story that can reach a broader audience. And maybe, I don't know, get him to pick up the book. See, Uh, that would be the thing is you've got, you've got to do it in a way that makes people want to read it. Or at least make them think that they know somebody in their in their life who's a science fiction fan and is like, "Ooh, I really like this movie. I know somebody who would really love this book." Yeah, because you know it works that way. It does. <laughs> like, and yeah. and in the in this day and age where everything is going digital, I think probably. In the next few weeks, I know Mindy and I have talked about this, hitting some of those used bookstores and adding to the library here because, you know, uh, physical media is going away. But there will uh, always there will always be a place for the tangible book. Yeah, we're just wired that way. We like to we like to touch things, touch things with our fingers. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm. I'm excited about this movie and consequently as, as a genre fan, I'm like, 
Well, that's a reason to be afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not going to commit to being excited about anything these days because I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the curmudgeon now, probably permanently. So. Well, you know, the the glass half full is okay. We get Dune. We get Dune Part Two, and that's <laughs> all we get. For me, it's like, just yeah. There's a glass. Yeah, it's. I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not even looking at what's in it yet. It's just okay. Fine. There's a glass. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. So, but, but the thing is, is that it, it doesn't end, right? Yeah. So you get Dune Part One. And they're like, okay, you know what? They're gonna make Dune Part Two. You're like, yay! You get the end of Dune Part Two. It's like, okay, we're getting Dune Messiah. No, uh, you know, or, or we get Dune Messiah. It's like, okay, yay! They go, can we get Children of Dune? No. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then you get, and then of course you run back into the same problem of God Emperor of Dune. How do we make this work? Well, I think the other the other part of it is the you know the the prequel series. And how that plays, and what does that do to contribute to interest in the overall scheme of everything? Because it sounds like they're trying to do this whole shared universe bit, where if we get certain, we get some series on HBO Max, we get some stuff in the theater, and it's all of a piece. Like, you know, like they're going to marvel it, or or DC or Star Wars or any of those right, things. Right, right. Then maybe that helps to maintain and generate interest from people who might not otherwise be interested in doing it. I don't know. We'll see. I, I have, I admit I'm fascinated by what they might do with the Bene Gesserit series. Yeah. Because the idea, I mean, think about all the po really good political shows that we've had from, uh, you know, uh, the how the very various versions of house of cards you've got the west wing you've got you know there's been all kinds of like really fantastic political shows over the last several decades mm -hmm. some of them are have aged well some of them haven't but all of them have have done some really interesting stuff with looking at like the the, the darker sausage making parts of, of something you don't want to think about right. and then put in the fact that the bene Gesserit is kind of a religious order and but how much of that is manufactured and 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 calculated and all these different things and i'm thinking this is going to be like all the things you you all the blood and guts of game of thrones mm. only super polite <laughs> and just I mean, just vicious as, as anything. Yeah. And I'm just like, this could be some, because I mean, it's, it's all about, they've got this, you know, agenda right. that is centuries and centuries old. And it's building up to the Quiza Tatarak. And then the fallout of that. Oh, there's so much stuff that it's like, ooh, this could be just, this could be crazy. Yeah. Interesting. And yet, Sci-Fi Snob says you make a good point about political shows. It wouldn't be too difficult to do a good show with broad appeal, and 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 maybe they do. Hopefully they do. We'll see. Um, well, and I, I think the one thing that could be a lot of fun, uh, and this is just you know my personal pitch and throw out to the world, there are a number of side characters that are mentioned in not only Dune but also in the Dune Encyclopedia, who are part of the backstory 
of mm. Dune, of the Bene Gesserit, uh, that really could be developed in the yeah. Bene Gesserit series, really given the expansion. There's a character who was the almost Kwisak Haderach, the guy who he was, if he had been born a generation later, it might have been him, but it wasn't. He was so. I mean, it's just like the guy who was almost. It's, it's a serious and disturbing version of Life of Brian. I mean, it's so, like you know, so it's almost the Messiah. Dune, <laughs> Dune, almost Messiah. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 yet he's an interesting character in his own right. And the, you get you get this much of him, this little sliver of his life. And I think it's in. I think it all takes place in Dune. It might be some bleed over into Dune Messiah, but I think it's all in Dune. Um, that would just be really interesting. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's all kinds of, of things to to play into there. Well, um, and we have and, that to look forward to. We'll see where that does. I don't know when that's coming out. That's hitting HBO Max for next year. I have year no idea. Next? I don't think we have a date yet. I all don't right. think we have anything. Well, okay. They're waiting. So, on, they're waiting on the Dune numbers. Yeah, they're Jason, waiting about they're it. Waiting on, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so what we'll see then is how it plays in the box office. October 22nd is the day it hits theaters and HBO Max. Go see it in theaters if you're interested. Meanwhile, tomorrow night here on the channel, Salacious Crumbs with the latest news and rumor for Star Wars. Uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central for that. And then, of course, throughout the week... We have uh, new discussions over Live from the Bunker on the 1 o'clock Eastern hour. So uh, we hope you join us for all of that. And, of course, we do invite you to subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Uh, we do hope that you enjoy all of the programs that we have here because we do a lot, and it's all for you. So uh, hopefully hopefully you, you get some enjoyment out of it. Uh, and uh, we hope you have the notification bell turned on so you know when we go and, and put new material out. And go connect with us over on Odyssey, uh, if you would, because that's an alternate uh, path for us to broadcast, and especially if we're having hijinks and shenanigans from YouTube. That still has not... Uh, we haven't had any problems broadcasting to Odyssey at this point yet. Uh, so join us over there, and we'll do this all again next week. I think, right? And and we actually we have a list. We may run through the list. We'll see. We do not promise to stick to the list. Yeah. I just want you to know that we will there will be divergences, but all right. All right. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Have a good night. Good night, guys. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 